All right. It's good to be back with everybody. Um, it's been a while. I'm, I was really enjoying worship, and uh, it's just really good to be back with everybody in, in the presence of God together. All right, well, we're uh, kind of heading off in a new direction tonight. Uh, we're going to talk through Hosea, and that marks our turn into uh, uh, nine weeks that we're going to spend in the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are not so much minor in terms of their significance. You know, I feel like they kind of got a bad, they got a bad label, the minor prophets, you know. Um, but they are just part of the prophetic section of the Old Testament. Uh, so they're not minor in their, in their significance. They are minor in their uh, length. And I think that's uh, where that term came from. Uh, but actually, the, the minor prophet, what we call the minor prophets, are a collection of 12 books. Uh, and they're often called the, the Book of the Twelve. Um, and it's an easy way to remember how many there are, because uh, 12 is you know, one of those significant biblical numbers. Um, but it goes, uh, you know, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and we tackled those last year. That was, that was a Herculean feat, uh, getting through all the major prophets. Uh, Daniel is counted as a major prophet, although not in the Hebrew scriptures. He's counted as a collection of writings in the Hebrew scriptures, but we won't, we won't get into that tonight. Um, so we're studying the minor prophets, except we're not going to study the, the last three, which are the three prophets that prophesied during and after the return from exile. And that was Zechariah, um, Malachi, what's the one after? Haggai, Haggai yeah. Zechariah, Haggai, Mal- Malachi, those are the ones that prophesied during the rebuilding of, uh, of the temple. So we've got nine weeks to go from Hosea through Zephaniah, I believe is the ninth that we're going to get to. Um, after that, that'll take us up to Easter. And after that, we're going to then go through Paul's letters. And I like how this is working out because it's going to be about a book per week, right? We're going to be on a, on a rhythm of studying a whole book in one week. And I kind of see the minor prophets and Paul's letters as related in some ways, right? They are to a particular people in a particular time, for a particular reason, and we get to dig into the occasion for the minor prophets, uh, as well as Paul's letters. Um, all right, so just a little background. Let's we'll do a little background here as we dig into the minor prophets, and we won't do this much background every time. But I think since we're we're shifting gears so so much, um, I thought it'd be good to kind of remember where we are in the story of Israel. All right, prophetic activity in the kingdom of Israel really started ramping up after it had been divided for a little while. And uh, I would call the prophetic age uh, sort of began with Elijah and Elisha. And then in subsequent generations, the prophets became more and more significant uh, in the story of Israel. Um, And the reason was the kings, after the, after the division of the kingdom, when, when the ten tribes went north and then Judah stayed south, um, the kings began to go astray, right? And it, it went wrong right after David, and even during David's kingdom. It went wrong, but Solomon was the one who, it, uh, he introduced 
you know, foreign idols into the land. And um, then his son and Jeroboam had a falling out and Jeroboam took the 10 tribes north. So all of that was going on. And God was still exercising his authority through the kings, technically. But really, it was the prophets in this period of time that, be, that became the spokes, spokespeople, the spokesmen for God. Uh, the, the kings were still there. They were on the throne. But the story revolves more and more around prophets who would come and speak the truth to God's authorities uh, because they would, had gone astray. And basically, the story of the kings is a story of were they faithful or were they not? You know, were they good or were they evil? Israel is what the northern tribes were called after, this, after the split. Israel had no good kings. No good kings. The closest it got, the one who received some commendation was, was Jehu. Um, and that's actually important to the story of Hosea. But Jehu was by no means a good king, but he did some good things in the eyes of God. Uh, but there are no commendable kings in Israel's history, and it's, it's not very long before they go into captivity to Assyria. The southern kingdom hangs on a little longer, and they do have some good kings, some periods of revival, but then they would fall back into idolatry and uh, the same old sins that have plagued Israel since Mount Sinai. Um, and that's really the story of Israel. It's, it's the same old things coming back, God delivering them, but then the people in their period of prosperity falling back into idolatry and unfaithfulness. That's what the story of Hosea is about. Um, one more thing about the prophets. Most of what the prophets had to say falls into two categories, right? It's words of judgment and coming punishment for their uh, unfaithfulness, for their breaking of the covenant, right? Remember all the terms of the covenant were spelled out a long time ago when God gave them the law, and he said, if you are faithful, you will be blessed. If you are unfaithful, you will be cursed, and these are the punishments that will follow. And so the the prophetic books in their passages of judgment and punishment are reminding the people that God, in exercising his faithfulness, in upholding his word, is sending punishment. Because he said, I will bless you and protect you if you're faithful. If you are faithless, if you turn away from me, if you ignore me, I will cause other nations to come and oppress you and conquer you, and you will serve other people. And he says, this is, this is actually, this isn't evidence of my hatred of you. It's actually evidence of my faithfulness towards you, because I'm being true to my word. And I have to uphold what I decreed when we initiated this covenant. So there's the words of judgment and punishment but there's also a, a, a strong strain of hope in, in the prophets, prophetic hope. And um, the hope particularly centers on the fact that the time for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises, his covenants, um, hasn't passed, right? We didn't pass the window. We didn't, they weren't fulfilled in the past, and now we're just on a steady decline to the end of time. No, there's still something ahead. That's why it's hope. It's in the future. There's still something ahead where God is going to fulfill his promises, his covenants, particularly the promises to Abraham, the promise uh, to, uh, through the law, right? He's going to fulfill the law. But most significantly in the prophets during this period of time, his covenant with David. The prophets are full of 
words of messianic hope. That, that God, and remember the, the covenant with David was that, David, I am going to sit one of your descendants on the throne. So it was a kingly covenant. The covenant with David was when, was, the covenant with David was when the idea of kingship was introduced into the promises of God. Right? Abraham, that was the promise of blessing. That was the promise of inheritance. Promise of filling the earth and making, uh, uh, blessing all the families of the earth through his family. The law was the promise of, you know, this is, you are going to be my people. And it was the establishment of a way of life, of a holy nation and a kingdom of priests and the establishment of the priesthood and the sacrifices and everything. With David, we get really the final step, uh, maybe the next to last step in the full picture of God's redemption story, right? The, the, the story after that would be the story of exile and return, all right? And those four big chapters of Abraham, of Moses, David, and exile and return, those set the stage for Jesus to come and for the time to be fulfilled. And all of those promises and more, Jesus fulfills. But the prophets in their messages of hope really look forward to the fulfillment of those covenants, particularly the coming of one like David or one like a son of man or an anointed one. Or in Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. And so this figure emerges in the prophets, this man, this one in the line of David who's going to come and and reestablish the throne in the way that was always intended uh, to be established. God's gracious rule in Israel, spreading out through the whole world once and for all, right? Setting everything right, uh, judging those who oppress his people, delivering them from every last oppression. And this was the man, this was going to be King David returning, coming back to reestablish the throne in fulfillment of God's promises. Um, All right, so backdrop to the, that's backdrop to the prophets. Um, Let's just dig into Hosea chapter 1. Many of the prophets contain uh, time stamps in the form of a list of kings during whose reigns they prophesied. And it's always important to just look up those kings. You refresh yourself with the story. I hope you did uh, or, or at least kind of made a mental note of uh, which kings were ruling during the, the ministry of Hosea. In Judah, which is the southern kingdom, it's Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. A couple actually decent kings, right? So this was actually one of the upswings for Judah. However, it's, it's right before the final downfall of Israel. And so Hosea is primarily prophesying to the northern tribes of Israel just prior to the final act of, of judgment on them where they are taken into captivity in Assyria. Those the, that was the big power at that time. Um, a couple of the other prophets that we're going to uh, read, uh, I think Jonah for sure. Um, there's one other one that prophesies to Israel. I think it's Joel prophesies to the northern tribe in this kind of early stage of the, of the prophets. In Israel, it says, in the northern tribes, the king is Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam 2, 
uh, Jeroboam I was the original king of the northern kingdoms, and he's actually why the kingdom divided. He established an alternative holy site in Bethel and uh, set up some idols there, and those idols were cast a shadow over the whole existence of the, the Israelite kingdom. Right? Every king is judged by whether he, um, it, it, he says, and he, but, he, but he left those idols there. He left the calves that Jeroboam set up. He left them there in Bethel and Dan. He left them there. And God was waiting for someone to rise up and strike those down. But no, uh, it says in the narrative of kings, in the southern tribes, if they were a good king, it says they walked in the ways of their father, David. He walked in the ways of his father, David. In Israel, that's not a commendation. It says he walked in the ways of his father, Jeroboam. Meaning it was idolatrous from the start. And this king in Israel did nothing to fix that idolatry. All right. So that's where we are. This is relative in in both Israel and Judah. It's it's relative prosperity. Okay. Okay. But in Israel, it's a calm before the storm. In Judah, it's one of, the, one of the rises before a fall, before a rise, before a fall, before the final exile. All right? But in both, in both areas of, of Israel as a whole, relative prosperity. Okay? And you can always determine the, the prosperity of a period of time in Israel by the length of the rule of its king. If a king is, is in power for a long time, it's a pretty good indication that things were going well. So that's why those lengths of the reigns in the books of Kings are important too. And uh, all right, so that's where we are. Jeroboam too had a 41-year reign. And that's incredible for one of the evil Israelite kings. All right, so it was going, um, Assyria had been weakened somewhat during that time. And so they weren't so much of a threat and so Israel was flourishing. The northern tribes were flourishing. And during this time, and you can, this is alluded to all through the book of Hosea, during this time of prosperity, people were enjoying being called the people of Yahweh, but they were actually just serving Baal, right? They were serving, they were idolatrous, their, their allegiances were spread, uh, they were syncretistic, right? That's, you know, one of the things that we see in Mexico now is that there's a Catholic church, and it's a prominent presence in the center of town, but you go into the Catholic church and it's actually really tightly woven in together with some pretty pagan local religions and superstitions. And this is what was going on, right? There was a, there was an institution called, you know, Judaism. And we've got a, we've got a holy site and we, we kind of call ourselves by, by the name of Yahweh, but we're not really faithful to him. And uh, this was the state of the Northern tribes of Israel. It was in their prosperity, right? It's never in times of, of dire need because that's when they cry out to God and say, oh, God, save us. It was in the time of prosperity that they were experimenting with other things and allowing themselves to, um, to take their prosperity and spend it on whatever their hearts desired, okay? And this is exactly what God uh, uses the metaphor of a promiscuous wife that's, exact, that, that's exactly what he's describing, right? This is someone who's loved and who is 
lavished upon, but is taking all that love and blessing and using it to be completely unfaithful. Right? And this is, the, this is the chief metaphor, the primary metaphor that Hosea uh, walks us through. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, now Hosea has broken down the, the rough outline as chapters 1 through 3 are the story of Gomer. 4 through uh, 14 are a collection of uh, Hosea's poems or or teachings kind of illustrating the story. But it says that God spoke through Hosea in both ways, and God often does this. Hosea's first message was not an oral message. Hosea's first message was an object lesson. He was to marry this woman, and that act in itself was the prophetic message. Does it make sense? God often does this through a prophet. When he speaks, he speaks through acts as much as he speaks through words in the life of a prophet. And so Hosea's first message that he delivered was his marriage. The marriage was the message to Gomer. Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And it's a, it's a gross word. And, Jose, and he keeps repeating it, right? So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And in the first chapter, we get there's three children. The first one's clearly, right, the child of, of Hosea. The second two, it's unclear who the father is, right? And it's ambiguous for a reason. Who knows? She was being unfaithful, right? And so who knows who was the real Father, and yet Hosea was called to love, be faithful to his wife and, and love those children, even though he may or may not have, you know, passed the paternity test on whatever that show is. You know, you are not the father. What is, yeah, I knew Andrew would know which one. <laughs> He's an expert on daytime television. But there's three prophetic words. Again, they're prophetic act. They're prophetic messages, embodied messages, that these three children represent. The first one's named Jezreel, all right? Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Um, I wish we had time to go back and look at Jehu because it's a fascinating story. It's, it's one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible, uh, this figure of Jehu. He's kind of this larger-than-life uh, figure who comes and absolutely cleans house. And he was raised up by God to, to judge the dynasty of Ahab, right, which was really one of the low points in all of the history of Israel, the house of Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel we, were a wicked power couple, who were leading the people astray, particularly to the worship of Baal. It's, it's Ahab that Elijah comes and confronts, right, in the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Later on, it's Jehu who actually ends up um, dismantling Ahab's dynasty and setting up, it's a change in dynasty, all right? And actually, this, is, this happens 
in Israel way more often than it happens in Judah, where there's a change in bloodline. All right. Um, and this is one of the changes, one of the big changes in the bloodline. I think it's the first one. But Jehu, back in 2 Kings chapter 10, God commends Jehu, and I just want to read real quick, because it's an interesting tie-in to this story. Second Kings 10, uh, verse 28, it says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So he was just like his great-great-great-grandfather, and he didn't turn aside from those sins. He judged Ahab's sins and wiped out Baal. The way he does it is really funny. Um, i got to tell this story. He, he goes in and he calls, he wipes out Ahab, or, and this is a really bloody scene where Jezebel, her eunuchs actually throw her out of a window and her blood splatters in the streets, and it's just really graphic. And it says they go and try to bury her, and all they can find is her skull in the palms of her hands. It's all that's left. Um, but the, uh, then it says, Jehu assembled all the people and said, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Right? He says, you guys thought Ahab was a, was a, a real Baal worshiper. Wait till you see this. And so he gets everybody excited about this big worship service, and he calls everyone in and just slaughters them. And he says, I'm going to serve Baal a lot, you know. And it's this real kind of a parody of, of, uh, of a, a worship service. It just ends up being this massacre, right? I don't even think that, that uh, like, modern TV w- w- viewers, even though we have a, such an appetite for, for – I don't even think that would fly on, on modern TV. It would. Andrew has greenlit that pilot. He's, he's here for it. <laughs> but it says in Second uh, Kings 10.30, The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, God was like, yes, <laughs> finally. Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit, shall sit on the throne of Israel. The fourth generation after Jehu is Jeroboam too. And uh, so God gave Jehu dynasty a, you know, a divine sanction up to a point. But now here in Hosea, he says, you know, the, it, it's time, the time is coming to an end. I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, right? This is not, although Ahab got what was coming to him, this is not a righteous way of conducting oneself as a king of Israel, right? And a man of blood ultimately is not the one for me, God says. So I'm going to punish Israel. That whole, that whole scene that whole period of time with the downfall of Ahab at the hands of Jehu, it's two, it's the lesser of two evils, right? But the lesser of two very great evils. And God says, okay, this, if these are the two options, then the whole thing has to go. 
I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. This section of, I mean, it's, it's, it's doomed. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel was where all the, the massacre took place uh, and where the, the, the bloodiness happened in the story of Jehu. So then a second child comes. It says, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel. That is uh, literally Loami. Loami. No, I'm sorry. Lo Ruhama. Uh, Loami is the next one. The third child, it says, uh, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. That's Loami. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Right? So these three big prophetic signs, the, the bloodiness and the, the tragedy of this dynastic clash between Ahab and Jehu, if that's the, if that's the way it's going to go, then this kingdom can be no more. Right? I feel like God would have some things to say about some of the, the <laughs> you know, the, the medieval clashes between the French and the English kings, or, you know, all that, the dynastic warring um, that goes on. It happens in every worldly kingdom. But he says, this is not, this is not the kind of kingdom that I, can, that I can deal with. The kingdom is going to go away. And my mercy has lasted up to a point. The mercy is going away. And you used to be part of my people. Now I, can, I don't even recognize you. You're no longer my people, you're not mine, right? Um, Israel, the northern tribes had gotten so far away from what God intended his people to be. He has this triple rejection of them in the form of the children of, of Gomer. Yet, he says in verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And there's this shocking reversal and this happens a number of times all through the book where you get down to the bottom of the judgment and the punishment and then there's this, this flip, this sudden, this sudden message of hope that just kind of breaks out of, the, breaks out of the, the devastation and the judgment. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. That means the kingdom will be united and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel is the location of one of the worst outcomes of any kingdom that was ever called the kingdom of God. And he says, and the day of Jezreel is going to be great. Right? You just see God locating the worst spots in his people and turning those spots into locations of, of stark reversal. And it's an amazing thing. It's, it's, the, it's the resurrection breaking forth in, in the whole book. Chapter 2 turns into kind of a song or, or a poem 
And, and God begins to unfold his, his heart. And this is another thing that, that Hosea really does so well, is it, is it allows us into the heart of God. It allows us to experience emotions from God's perspective. And he says, um, I mean, you see anger, right? But you also see, you, you see frustration. You see con- almost confusion on the part of God. You see, um, you see grief, all these different emotions, and you go, whoa, this is, this is God. <clears throat> plead with your mother, he says, plead, for she's not my wife, and I am not her husband. This is not the way a marriage should go. No one in their right mind would call this a marriage. And he says, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to continue to pursue her and to try and win her back, even in the midst of her unfaithfulness. He says in verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. This is another one of those places. I'm going to take this, the valley of Achor, which is trouble. Uh, the valley of Achor was where Achan was... Um, was uh, stoned. You remember the story in Joshua. Uh, that The name Achan uh, is the same word. The Valley of Trouble. Uh, do you remember Achan? The story of Achan and Joshua? He steals some of the, they, they, uh, he steals some of the stuff from uh, Jericho. No, from Ai. Where did he steal it from? Yeah. Yeah, and then kind of lied about it and covered it up. And God found him out, and he is, you know, this is all the elders of Israel uh, heaped stones on top of him, and they dealt with the trouble that was in their midst. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Right? There's this reversal. The, the, the very spot of the worst, I'm going to make it, I'm going to change it, I'm going to reverse it all. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This is a call back to the first love. You know, the, you, we used to have, we used to love each other. And this is, I love this, is so beautiful. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my Baal. Right? He says, you have... You have engaged in relationship with me as one would engage in relationship with Baal. God says, that's not what I've been looking for at all. My desire is to have a relationship with you as a husband has a relationship with a wife, a deep relationship, an intimate, a faithful relationship, an exclusive relationship, a loving relationship. 
And he says, and that's, what I, that's how I feel towards you. That's what I desire from you. But you turn around and call me Baal. And go through your life and go through your acts of worship as if I'm a pagan deity who needs to be won over, who needs to be appeased, and who's just a projection of the whims of the human heart. And he says, I don't want to be called Baal. I don't want to be treated like Baal. I want you to call me my husband. If you can call me my husband, it means we have a different kind of relationship altogether. Right? I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. That's what God's crying out for from his people. And you shall know the Lord. It's an intimate term. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. You shall know me, says the Lord. I don't want you to serve me as one would serve Baal. I want you to know me in the way that I know you. Amen? He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And chapter 3 is amazing. The Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's not like a sacred food item, you know. That was a delicacy. In the, it's like a cake of raisins. The point is that it was a cake of raisins. <laughs> the point is that the things that we trade a relationship with God for are laughable. They turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I feel like, I mean, this is, we can, I, I think that each of us could identify a cake of raisins in our lives. Something that has really genuinely hindered our walk with God that is completely laughable. Right? What is a raisin cake? Nasty, right? Yeah, I get the, the image of one of those fruit cakes. Definitely, why would you turn? I mean, it's not even good. This was probably better than that. Verse 3, he says, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now listen, this is, this is incredible prophecy. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. And this came true, right? After the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes, 
They didn't have their holy sites anymore. Without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's talking about Israel. Um, you remember that in the story of the, the uh, woman at the well in John chapter 4. You know, where's she from? She's from Samaria, right? That's northern Israel. That's the capital of Israel, Samaria. And the people who came back to the, those places became known as Samaritans, and they never really made it back into the family, right? Jews and Samaritans were at odds with each other. But the Samaritans, their lineage goes back to these northern tribes that were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So she's a Samaritan woman who's had lots of husbands and who isn't quite sure how you're supposed to worship God. That's Gomer. That's northern Israel. That's Hosea chapter 3. You're going to dwell many days without king or prince. She says, now, we have people who say you should worship God on this hill, but the Jews, they, you worship God on that mountain. Where are you supposed to worship God? Because we've been kind of floating around here for a while. No one can tell me for sure. That's one of the questions she asked Jesus. She's had six husbands, seven husbands, and the one she's with isn't even her husband. Right? Jesus, in the woman at the well, Jesus was showing faithfulness and grace and mercy to northern Israel. He was fulfilling, he was acting in God's heart for those people. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. She said, hey, we know that there's this Messiah that's supposed to come. And Jesus said, that's me. Messiah is King David. It's the throne of David. And she found King David. And she came. And she went and she told all of her neighbors, you got to come see this guy. And there they were. They came to God. They came back to God and they came to David the king. And to his goodness in the latter days. We live in the latter days. The latter days are when Jesus walked the earth from, from the time he walked the earth until now. Isn't that awesome? I think John 4 is a fulfillment of Hosea 3. It's a beautiful picture. And Jesus says, I know you. I've known you for a long time. And he recognized her. And all the marks, all the confusion was there. And he, he uh, extended mercy to her. Even his, his disciples were shocked, you know. What are you doing talking to a woman? He's like, no, this is, this is the heart of what I came to do. Uh, there, is, there is a new thing happening, and we are, uh, we're witnessing it happen right now. Well, we could spend a lot more time and go through. There's just so many highlights in this book. There's so many great little snippets um, in, the, in the last two-thirds of the book after chapter 3. Um, 
you know, there's, it's where the verse that death, where is your sting? That comes from Hosea, where God takes death and it's, a, it's, that, it's that reversal. What's the worst thing you can think of death? Well, we're going to take death itself and, and, and take the fangs right out of its mouth, right? Even death itself is not going to have the final say. Um, beautiful song of, of Israel's childhood, you know, in chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. He says, I taught him how to walk. I took him by the hand. You know, there's this really tender picture of God's love for his people. And then uh, in you know, chapter 14, the final plea to return. Return Israel to the Lord your God. Come back. And that, that, that refrain gets picked up in the Gospels, in, in, the, in the message that John and Jesus came proclaiming, which was repent. That's return. Come back. You've gone astray. Return my people to me. And I will pardon you. I will cleanse you. Just put away your other lovers. Put away your other gods. So, uh, some, some thoughts and then, and then some questions for application. Here's a few thoughts just about this book. Um, we're only stopping here for a week, so I want to kind of touch on what do we take away from Hosea? What, what role does it play in shaping our understanding of who God is, shaping our understanding of the story of Scripture? And uh, I think it, it contributes a lot. I think it's a really important book. They're all important. This one is particularly important. The theme of the redeemed, unfaithful wife is a major theme all through Scripture. All through Scripture. You know, you think of, you think of Rahab. You think of all those women in, in David's, or in uh, Jesus's uh, lineage. Uh, any woman that's mentioned is basically a very sinful woman who somehow had been redeemed. Ruth was a Moabitess. You know, and she gets grafted into the lineage, the seed of Jesus. Um, David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah, right? That's a tragic situation. That's a, a terrible situation. And yet God redeemed it. And all through the story, God is redeeming broken Mary Magdalene. You know, right when, he's, right when he comes out of the grave and he's, he's still there in the garden, it's, it's Mary who's looking for him, you know? There's that beautiful scene between Jesus and Mary uh, right after he uh, rises from the dead at the end of, uh, is that John where that is? Where, where the, yeah, John. She confuses him with the gardener, and there they are in the garden. You know, it's beautiful. I lost my train of thought. Okay, so yeah, so some thoughts about what Hosea contributes to our overall understanding of, of God. Um, Hosea shares some similarities with Ezekiel in that they rely very heavily on the unfaithful wife metaphor, the promiscuous woman that God loves. Both, and, and both of those books are, um, they're called, both, of, both Hosea and Ezekiel are called deathbed prophets, meaning it's the final word before judgment's coming. You know, Ezekiel actually is in exile as he's, as he's prophesying to Judah. His most stark prophecies revolve around the metaphor of a husband grieving 
the sinfulness and the unfaithfulness of his wife. This is significant because both when Israel was right at the end and when Judah was there right at the end before captivity, God was saying, I need you to understand the heart of this. I need you to understand the heart of the matter. I'm not an angry God who's looking to conform you to my ways. I am a husband who deeply loves you as my wife. And you have broken my heart. You haven't just broken a law code, and now I need to punish you because I'm a great legal administrator of justice. No, I committed myself to you fully. And I said, I will love you no matter what you do. And you took all of that grace and all that mercy, and you spent it on yourself. And I blessed you, and I brought you up, and I brought you to myself, and I beautified you. You were nothing good to look at, but I made you beautiful and loved you so dearly in spite of the way that you treated me. And here you are, still faithless after all these years. So when it gets down to the heart of the matter, the covenant between God and his people, he wants them to know is personal and intimate. That's what Hosea shows us. That's what Ezekiel shows us, that the covenant, what's at stake in breaking the covenant is the heart of God. We're not just breaking a law. We are breaking a, a person's heart, a person who loves us. The covenant between God and his people is personal, and it's intertwined with all sorts of complex and complicated emotions that go along with a deep relationship. It's the ones that you are most deeply related to who can hurt you the most, right? This is a, this is a well-known fact. And God's saying, you are the most deeply related to me. And so it's, it's you, Israel, that is able to hurt me the most. I can take it from the Assyrians. They're going to do what they do. I can take it from the um, the Persians. I can take it from Pharaoh. He's been doing that stuff all along. I know what they're going to do. But you are my people. And when you turn your back on me, that's what really hurts. And so we're, we're given a, a perspective that we have to take. We're given access into God's perplexity in how he is going to continue to be faithful to, to us. Right? We're meant to imagine how we would respond in such a situation. Right? That's why, that's why Hosea said, he said, you go do it and you feel it. And you, you act it out in front of my people. So that they can get a good picture of the situation I'm in. And, and have been in for a long time. This is a great book who, for those who struggle with why do bad things happen to good people? Because God's the central character. And the question we come away with is, how did all this happen? How did all of this happen to such a good and loving God? What more could he have done? But that's the question that we're left with after reading Hosea. Right? Not, you know, why do these bad things happen to good people? But... How could all of this have happened to a perfect, loving, tender God? 
How would, how would we have God navigate the situation, right? How would we have God relate to his people? What's he supposed to do? And really, that's, you see God kind of asking those questions. What am, what am I to do with you? I don't want to just abandon you. What should I do? And we don't see the deliberations. We see the deliberations of someone who's not out to conform people to his way. We see the deliberations of someone who really wants to receive love back from the one that he loves. And isn't going to give up hope that they will understand who he is and return that love. God wants loving relationship. He doesn't want conformity to his will, ultimately. Although that is his will, right? For us to freely love him. He's not going to let punishment slide because he's a faithful God and he's just. Especially since the idolatry and the hypocrisy have become so flagrant. The unfaithfulness, it's just, it's just brazen, right? It's so clear. But he can't just wave his magic wand and, and move on. God refuses to divorce them. Right? We in our society, we would go, you know, it's gotten to that point. This isn't going to go any farther. Divorce. Scrap it. Start over somewhere else. God refuses to divorce his people. So we get to watch God in this book absolutely refuse to divorce his bride. And we go, how in the world is this going to ever change? What's he going to do about this? And we get to see, like I said, him, all the emotions, the range of emotions that God feels. Sometimes he's passive and he's like, all right, just go, you know. Fine. I'm not going to try and convince you anymore. Go do what you're going to do. He's passive and dismissive. Sometimes he's reactive and angry. But all through it, he's full of tenderness, and there's a, there's a pervading grief throughout the whole book. Why has it come to this? I love you. I've always loved you. All right, so here's some questions to chew on. And this one has to do with the the metaphor that God comes down to when, when things get at their very worst. God says, you know what is going on here? Is I've, I am a husband whose wife is unfaithful. And I need you to see it from that angle to understand the reality of things. So here's the, here's the question. Do I think of sin more in legal or relational terms? Legal meaning it's a, it's a law code. It's an expectation that I didn't meet. You know, it's a should. It's a thou shalt. You know, do I relate to sin in that way? Or do I really understand sin as the destruction of a personal relationship? As unfaithfulness to a particular person? And that'll change the way that you view sin. 
Remember in 1 John? I mean, he's, he's dead set on saying that sin and love are the opposites here. Right? Sin is just being unloving. Sin is a relational act. It's a relational sabotage. It's not just breaking a rule. Uh, number two, I think a good challenging question out of Hosea. You know, he gets on them for going around to other lovers. And one of the things that that is referring to is how Israel would constantly seek foreign help, foreign aid from, you know, pagan kings. And they would sacrifice their integrity as a nation and, uh, you know, give up some of their distinctiveness so that they could have protection from a foreign power. You know, and so one question this book raises is, where, where have I turned in the past? Where have I turned in the past for help or security? You know, when I find myself unable to cope with who God wants me to be and, and being the person that I know he wants me to be, where do I turn? What do I rely on? What do I surrender as part of myself, part of my freedom, part of my uh, strength to? What do I surrender myself to and just say, you know, tell me what to do. I'll, I'll do what you tell me. God wants us to bring that stuff to him. And if we go elsewhere with that stuff, to another person, to another um, just pop wisdom or you know, any kind of secular, secular wisdom that we would seek and grasp out for to help us be who we think that we should be, you know, God's standing there saying, what about me? How, how is that person going to help you when you won't even consult me? Do we rely on foreign aid in times of, of, of trial? The other thing, and this isn't a, a question, but this is just, I think, an application to consider. You know, Hosea's love for Gomer, his marriage of Gomer, itself was a prophetic sign. It was a prophetic act. His faithfulness to her, his refusal to compromise, his refusal to reject her, walk away from her, that was itself the sign that God wanted to show Israel of who he was. And so I'm just thinking that the the way that we love one another, the way that we're called to live in relationship, certainly in our marriages, in our families, but also just in the body of believers, God calls us to a covenant love for one another, an agape love that reflects the kind of love that he has for us. Um, that, is, that itself is a prophetic sign to the world that we live in of who God is. And we recognize that, I think, a lot when we, in our, in our weddings, I think we do a good job of, you know, a, a lot of times when, when young couples get married, they, they want people to know that what they're doing is meant to be a sign of who God is. You know, it's like when, when Paul talks about how marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. You know, that's, that's one of the themes that Hosea really informs us of. But the way we love one another and the way we love those who are lost, 
the way that we commit ourselves in faithfulness and, and self-giving love is a prophetic sign to those who call themselves after the name of Jesus and to the world around us, those who reject God. Uh, we, as we love one another and as we refuse to lapse into the, the unfaithfulness and the, um, the kind of relationship that just seeks what's best for itself, and, and if I don't get it from you, I'm going to go get it from someone else. If we set that aside and if we lay our lives down truly for one another, Jesus said, by this will everybody know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And uh, we have an opportunity to be a prophetic voice in the same way that Hosea was to, to the people of God and to the nations around Israel in that time. We have an opportunity to be a prophetic voice. This is who God is. God's not wanting to play this game like you do this for me and I'll do this for you. And hey, if you do this, if you, if you love me this much, well, then I'll bless you this much. God's not playing those games. And we live in a, amongst the people who play those games with each other and with God all the time. And we do it too. Right? We make deals, we make bargains, we try, and, we try and quid pro quo our way through our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And God says, stop. No, I love you. You can't earn my love anymore. You can't do anything. I love you. Now, take that and be my people. Take that and reflect and, and love one another in that way. Right? This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to show us. Amen? All right, so we get to uh, celebrate, I think, one of the greatest acts of love that humanity has ever witnessed. And, I mean, just look at this. It's, it's broken body, poured out blood. Why? So that at the place where our sin would do its worst, God could bring about an incredible reversal. How could... Broken body, spilled blood, become our, our weekly source of joy and sustenance. Right? That's a terrible thing. The best man who ever walked the face of the earth was betrayed and beaten and killed in a humiliating way. And that's what we celebrate every week. <laughs> Talk about a reversal. God has turned the worst thing that ever occurred, the worst injustice ever, into a source of grace for us. So God's a God of reversal. God is a God of, even though his people never got the message, they never responded, they never returned, he returned to them. He was walking through and was thirsty, and saw a woman of Samaria there, and said, I'm back. Come to me. The, the, the offer is open even to you. Right? And we are recipients of that grace. Um, so let's come to the table and celebrate the unconditional, undeserved love of God. And let's be filled with his life so that we can live that in each other's lives.
Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your body and your blood. We thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you had this meal with your disciples and you said, they didn't fully understand what was, what was coming, but you said, this is the covenant. You're going you're gonna to see the fulfillment of the, of the covenant here in my body and blood. And because I'm going to surrender my body uh, to the will of the Father, you guys are going to see once and for all how this covenant works. And so I thank you, Lord, that we have the forgiveness of sins through this cup of the new covenant. Lord, that we have access to your presence. Lord, that we have received... We have received uh, every grace. And so, Lord, we come joyfully to this table. Lord, we thank you that um, this is a, such a better meal than the raisin <coughs> cakes that we feed ourselves and that we crave. Lord, you are the best. There is none better. Father, where else would we go? We, we need this meal, Father. This is the only food. This is the only drink that will cause us never to thirst again. Lord, this is the only meal that will keep us from going to all the other lovers that have tried to woo us away from you. Lord, this is the, the, this is the last meal we ever need. Lord, this is the last act of love you ever need to show us. We believe you. We trust you. We see your love for us. And so we humbly come to your table, Lord, and bow ourselves before you. Say that you're a good God, and we are so privileged and honored to, to be able to call you our, our bridegroom, our husband. Thank you, Lord. Minister to our hearts, every heart in this room, God, through this bread and this cup. Pray that it would be the very life of Jesus uh, ministered to our lives. In Jesus' name.